Well, this morning we conclude what we have called a three-paragraph sentence, a long run-on sentence from the Apostle, uh, as he uh, has uh, tuned the Ephesians into the Trinitarian blessings that are theirs. In fact, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we have been told, are theirs in Christ. And so we've thought about the fact that these blessings are Trinitarian. It is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So we've considered that and encouraged ourselves to think Trinitarianly. Don't just think of God. Think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the God, the one God that we serve. But good to have that distinction in our heads as we, as we pray. So we've thought about the Trinitarian nature of every spiritual blessing. But we've also uh, reminded ourselves, because Paul pounds it in this text, the Trinity is, is, is woven in and through the text, undergirds the text. But what, what we see running all through it is the phrase, in Christ. The way that we encounter the Trinity and the way that we receive the blessings of the Trinity is in Christ, in union with Him. And so we've been thinking about that. So we've thought first about the work of the Father in this triune work in which no work is greater than another, nor a person of the Trinity greater than another. But the work of the Father is that predestining love, the determination, if you will, the calling to save a people. And the work of the Son was to accomplish the will of the Father, to go forth and execute, if you will, the decrees of the Father. Uh, decrees that, of course, the, the, the three persons of the Trinity have agreed on. Uh, it's not as if the Father's bossing around the Son. They're equal in power and glory. But the Father directs the Son equal to the Father executes, if you will, accomplishes the will of the Father. And he does that in the work of redemption. And that's what we thought about last week. It's, it's actually the Father says, we'll save this people, and the Son does what is necessary in order to save them. He literally pays the price to purchase them back, or the language of uh, Ephesians, the language of redemption. By his blood... He bought us back. He bought us out of our slavery to sin. He redeemed us and freed us from the wrath that was rightfully ours. He, he literally paid the price uh, for us to be, to be free. And as such, in verse 11, we've attained an inheritance. It, it, it's not just that he freed us from something. He freed us to something. You know, he, he, he not only says, okay, you're not going to go to hell, but that would be that would be unbelievable news. You're no longer an enemy of God. Just that alone would be worth jumping around for joy, you know. But not only that, you're a son. You know, you're an heir. You 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 actually receive an inheritance. Not only are you not going to be damned, you're going to be blessed. And so we thought about that, that he who predestined us according to his purpose, has, through him we've obtained an inheritance. And so that's how the text ended last week. And then all of this, you'll remember, was so that we could be something, that we would be to the glory of uh, the praise, if you will, of his glory. And we thought about that, what it means to be to the praise of his glory. 
Yeah, we do stuff to his glory, but just you're to be to the praise of his glory. It's what everything is about in your life. Okay, so the work of the Father and the Son, and that brings us then today to verses 13 and 14, to the work of the Spirit. The gifts are from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The Spirit then is the one that takes the the will of the Father, executed by the Son, and then applies it to us. And that's what we have here. I'll read the, the two verses, and then we'll kind of tackle them, verse 13 and then verse 14. In Him you also trusted in Christ. That is, okay, there's that phrase again, in Him. So it begins again that way. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, in Christ, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Okay, so first in verse 13, so I want us to think about the work of the Spirit in doing two things, and these things are not... Um, separated. They're, they're just two, they're, they're two sides of a, of a coin, if you will. But on the one hand, he seals us. And on the other hand, he pledges something to us. He's a, he's a guarantee of something. He's a down payment is another way of saying it. So on the one hand, he seals us in Christ, and then he seals a promise of God to us. So we'll think about those two things in these two verses. So first, one thing the Holy Spirit does is seals us in Christ. The Holy Spirit is, if you will, the bond that links you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is, is what seals us in Him. And here we can think sealing in, in various ways, but the idea of a seal, like when you open a, a, a thing of medicine, you know, and, uh, and it's got that little aluminum, thin aluminum seal over the time. Now, if you see that thing broken, right, we, we, we turn it back in. We say, we're not, we're not taking this. Who knows what's, what's happened here, you know? Uh, but we, we see the seal and it protects it. It tells us it's pure. It tells us it's, it's protected. And the Holy Spirit does that. But the word seal also has the, the implication of ownership. You know, um, you know, I have, I have years ago, I got one of those, uh, one of those, you know, in, what are they called? Embossers, you know, in, in impression for my books, you know, pastors and teachers give away, we loan books out all the time, you know? And, uh, so I think Christina years ago got me one of those things you impress in the corner of your book, you know, it says ex libris, you know, bill spanish, because it, it's nice when it's in Latin, it makes you feel smarter that you're, you're, you have things like that. But, it, but, you know, from, from the library. <laughs> From the library of Bill Spanger. Um, it, it still doesn't matter. The books don't come back. It's just that now a lot of people have books that say Ex Libris Bill Spanger. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or whatever my initials is, you know, WHS. So, <laughs> and so anyway, that, it doesn't work. But, but the idea is that it seals it. It, it impresses it. It says, Oh, that, that's mine. You know, it, the book, the book now has ownership. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit plays this role as well. That the Holy Spirit is, is impressing uh, impressing God's name into our hearts. It's saying, it's saying, this is mine. This is mine, right? The Holy Spirit does that. Well, does it to whom? All right, so let's jump back up to the beginning of verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. That's a nice little, uh, it's a, a little sen- part of a sentence worth reflecting on because here we have Paul, in, in some sense, describing how you get saved. Right? He, this is the way he says it in Romans. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And also to the Ephesians. You know, you heard the gospel of your salvation and you trusted in it. And in trusting in it, you were saved. You know, in trusting in it, you were united to the Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple words worth reflecting on here. One, hearing. Faith comes by hearing. The gospel, therefore, must be preached. The gospel must be declared. And not, and not just here. Hopefully your faith is being built up by hearing the word preached here, but by the church out into the world. If we want friends to come to know the Lord, they need to hear it. Yes, it's important that they see it. You know, St. Francis Assisi said, you know, uh, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You know, he basically in what he was saying, St. Francis, you might know, was a, a man who, who had a deep love for uh, the poor and for serving and caring for the poor. And so St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, let your whole life just be gospel. You know, you're just living the gospel. And that's true. And that's good. That's a beautiful thing to say. Sometimes we need to hear that. You know, preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. But, but Paul doesn't say faith comes by seeing Christians living good lives. He says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So yes, live, you know, Franciscan lives. Live lives that are, you know, praise God for St. Francis. Live lives that are so sacrificial that you are the body of Christ you know, dying for the world. Do that. Serve the world in such a way that they are provoked to say, man, what's the hope within you? That's good. That's good. But also say, because sometimes we we can take that as a cop-out because it's awkward to say. It's awkward to tell. It's awkward to proclaim. Living is easy because maybe it asks questions, maybe it doesn't, and we're simply blessing. But but words we know are, you know, they, they cause conflict. When I say this is true, it provokes, you know, responses. Well, you're arrogant. How, you know, don't tell me. You're, you know, who are you to tell me how I'm living is wrong or what I'm believing? You know, all kinds of things. We know we're entering into dicey territory when we start telling people about Jesus. But Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Paul went into Ephesus and he preached and the preaching was powerful. And the preaching had implications. We A riot started in Ephesus because the people were living the gospel in such a new way that it cut into the idol-making business and the, you know, the silversmiths who were making idols for the goddess Diana. Like literally, the gospel had such an impact in Ephesus. So many people were believing it and living differently that it provoked conflict. So even our actions can do that when we live for Christ. But it began with Paul proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And salvation came by the Ephesians hearing it, but not merely hearing it, but believing it, and not merely believing it, and this I'm driving here to the key word, I think, in this text, in him you also trusted. And I say that because, and here it just brings me back to something I say to my students all the time, because it's a, it's a, uh, it can be a real danger for 
kids going to Christian schools. But it can also be a real danger for you, who many of you have been Christians for many years, that we start to think faith is right belief. And right belief is necessary for faith, but it's not sufficient for faith. You must hear, that is, you must understand and comprehend. You've got to have, you've got to have some comprehension of the facts. But then not only comprehending, you must believe it's true. But just believing it's true is not sufficient. The demons believe this stuff and they shudder, says James. It requires more than that. It's hearing, comprehending. It's believing. And then it's trusting. Right? Trusting is laying hold of, submitting myself to, living in accordance with if we're going to do trust falls and you're going to stand behind me and say, hey, we got you here. You've all linked arms and you say, we got you. <laughs> you know, I hear you, you know, and I can even say I believe you. But if I refuse to fall, <laughs> you know, that means I don't trust you. And as Christians, what saving faith looks like is not just having the right beliefs. Like you could pass a quiz on Christianity and you could even sign your name on the bottom and say, yeah, I believe all that. But how do we walk? And that's what we thought about in the Romans part. We walk not according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. If we say we believe all these things, but then we walk according to the flesh, well, that demonstrates that we don't actually believe what the Spirit is saying. We don't actually believe what the gospel is telling us. It needs to work itself out through our fingertips. It's got to work ourselves out and work itself out in the way we live. That's how trust is demonstrated. Trust is action. Trust is application of what we say we believe. Trust, you know, our actions demonstrate what we trust and what we truly believe. And the Ephesians trusted after they heard the gospel of your salvation, the good news, right? The good news that we thought about in Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? What we trust is that all that God requires of us is freely given to us. What we trust is that in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we trust that. And so when Satan whispers in our ear and seeks to convict us and, and grind our sin, you know, in, into us, we trust the promises of God that as much as it stinks to confess the fact that I sinned again, I trust the fact that I'm forgiven. I trust the fact that I do have an eternal reward, a treasure set up for me by Christ in the heavenly places that is reserved and can't be touched and moth and rust can't destroy. I trust that. And so when temptation comes to fix my mind on the things of earth, I trust the promises of God that I don't have to grind it out for the things of this life. You only go around once, so you better get everything you can. I, I don't have to live like that because I trust the promises of God that I have Every, Paul says to the Corinthians, all things in Christ are yours. So, so what do I have to strive and claw for? Everything is mine in Christ. He says it to the Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. It's all yours. So we can, we can, we can get out of the rat race because I trust the gospel. I trust the good news of my salvation and the fact that in Christ I have an inheritance. And in trusting, it is the Holy Spirit that then seals this truth to us. 
you know, in, in reform circles, when we use the acrostic tulip, you know, the, the final, the P in tulip, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. And then the P is preservation of the saints. And we believe in the preservation of the saints. That is, we believe that, that those who are saved will be saved forever. Because of a text like this, that we believe your salvation does not ultimately depend upon the strength of your grip clinging to Jesus, right? But that the, the security of your salvation depends upon the strength of his grip. He's, you know, he, he's, he's gripped you and your grip may be a little weak, but you are sealed in Christ by the work of the spirit. He is the one that secures us as his children. It is he who brought the good news of the gospel to you. It is he who breathed. Think about the, we could, we could uh, go to all sorts of imagery here. Think of, think of uh, uh, the passage in Ezekiel 37 with the dry bones, you know, the army of the Lord, the, the people of God, which Ezekiel is brought to the valley of the dry bones and he's, and he's told to look out at it. And he, the, the uh, Lord says to him, Hey, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel knows probably not good to answer this. So he just says, Lord, you know. <laughs> and, and, and he says, well, speak to them and, you know, speak and tell them to live. And, and, uh, you know, the bones clickety clack start coming together, but they have no life in them. And then he turns to Ezekiel and he says, now prophesy, son of man, to the wind, to the breath, to the spirit on the Hebrew and in Greek. That's all the same word, right? to the Spirit, and the Spirit comes and fills them with life, and these dry bones become an army, a mighty army of the Lord. Think about in the very beginning in creation when, when man is also dry bones, a clay, literally made up out of the dirt, and there he is, an empty shell of a thing, and the Lord breathes his breath, his Spirit into him, and he becomes a living being And that same image Jesus picks up in John 3 when he talks about the wind, the pneuma, the spirit, blows and we don't know where. But he makes men born again with spiritual life. Those who are dead in sin and trespasses, God by his spirit has made alive together with Christ. We're getting there in Ephesians 2. The Holy Spirit seals the work of Christ to us and applies it to these dry bones, this spiritually dead person, and he makes us alive together with Christ and seals us, whoops, sorry, seals us in Christ together. So that is, that is the gift of the Spirit to us. But then secondly, in verse 14, not only does he do that, but then in uniting us to Christ, he then seals us for our salvation, but then of course also then is a pledge. If you have the Holy Spirit, then it is evidence of the fact that you have everything that is yours in Christ. But the reality is that in Christ, all these things are not obvious. This is why we live by faith. So the gifts that are ours in Christ, many of them are yours in principle. Now, they're already yea and amen in Christ. But their full consummation awaits the future. Just like Abraham in Genesis 15, our Old Testament reading today, right? Abraham has promised something. He's promised a land and he's promised a posterity. He's got neither. And 
you know, he, he's got some questions for the Lord. How exactly is this going to be? And the Lord is so merciful to him. You remember old Zechariah when he told him he was going to have a son and he questioned and the Lord struck him, you know, dumb until, uh, until the child was born. The Lord is more gracious with Abram because Abram's like, well, Lord, how can it be? You know, this land is ruled by giants and I have no children. And the Lord graciously takes him out and shows him the stars and, and then makes this covenant with him, gives him this sacramental, if you will, pledge that, hey, you know how you know it can happen? Because I just did that. I, I cut the animals in half and then I pass between them in two forms, a flaming torch and a smoking pot representing both sides of this covenant because typically a covenant like this would be cut and then the two people both pledging promises would walk down the middle of it. And so they'd make promises. I pledge to do this. Okay, I pledge to do this. All right, let's seal it. And they'd walk through that bloody pathway of the cut animals, just kind of gross, laying there and cut and literally cut in half. And, and you'd walk between them. And the idea would be, if either of us doesn't keep our side of the deal, we, we become like these animals. That's what we're pledging right now to each other. And so God condescends to do this ceremony with Abram saying, hey, here's how you can know. Okay, hey, you want to know? Fine, let's shake on it. Then fine, let me give you my pledge and I'll use the pledge you're used to. Cut the animals in half and lay them down. But as he does, Abraham goes into a, a you know this sort of terrible dark sleep and he sees two images, a flaming torch and a smoking oven, go down through the pieces together, but Abraham doesn't go. And the Lord passes between the pieces himself, but in two forms, <laughs> representing the fact that God himself will do both sides of the covenant. The whole thing depends on him. He will accomplish it from beginning to end. But you might remember in that text, before the Lord does that, he says a word to Abram, hey, here's what you can know. I'm about to pledge this to you, but here's what you'll know. This land will be yours, but first... You're, you know, you're going to die at a ripe old age, so you're not going to see this, Abram. But in time, it will come. But also, there's going to be 400 years where you're going to be held captive by another people. I mean, wow, okay. Hey, I'm pledging this to you, but you're not receiving it right now. The, the inheritance is down the road. And so it is for you and me. We have an amazing pledge, a new heavens and a new earth. Right, all the, go read, go read the promises to the churches in Revelation two and three. All those promises are yours: white robes and a new name, and sitting on the throne with God, and all these beautiful things. They're all yours, but not yet. In principle, yes, done. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and therefore all the promises are secure and pledged. They're right there, secure. And you have been given a pledge. You've been given a guarantee. You've been given a down payment of what is yours. And that down payment, says the scriptures, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you is the down payment from God of your eternal inheritance. You're, the lawyer has written you the letter. And said, hey, I need to let you know you have a $100 million inheritance coming. And he sends you this 
million dollar check. Hey, just so you know, it's coming here, right? Even that's a terrible, probably a terrible illustration, but you get the point. It's like, hey, just so you know, I'm not kidding around. Here, here, here's the million dollar check, but you have a hundred million dollar inheritance coming. And that's what the Bible is saying is the Holy Spirit is to us a down payment, a, a guarantee, verse 14, who is the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice he's the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Christ purchased you. He purchased your body. It's going to be renewed. He purchased the whole heavens and earth. Remember, heaven and earth are groaning, longing for the day of redemption. Uh, Romans chapter 8. And the Holy Spirit is the pledge that says it is coming. The Holy Spirit that dwells in you is the pledge of the inheritance that is coming for you. Now, one, one of the other reasons I read um, uh, Genesis 15 today is because lest we, lest we set our sights too low here and think, oh, wow, great, we're going to get new bodies. That's going to be awesome. We're going to live eternally. That's going to be awesome. We're going to see our loved ones. Oh, praise God. That's going to be awesome. No more sickness, no more disease, no more depression, no more darkness, no more politics. Uh, yeah, hooray, praise the Lord. This is going to be great, right? But lest we set our sights too low, which are, those are all great things, and the Holy Spirit is the pledge that all that's coming. But lest we set our sights too low, I chose Genesis 15 because in the beginning of Genesis 15, as he, as he sets himself with Abraham and he's about to make this pledge to him, he says to him, Abraham, because uh, Abraham's saying, hey, how am I going to get this land? Oh, man, the pledge that you're going to get the land? Wow, that's great. How am I going to have children? I, you're going to have children. See the stars? More than that. But go back and look at the text. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your very great reward. I am your inheritance. <laughs> I am your exceedingly great reward. The land is awesome. And you know what? You're going to get it. And the descendants are awesome. And you know what? You're going to get them more than the stars of the sky. But I am your very great reward. And at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 21, when we get the picture of the redemption of the purchased possession, the full thing comes to fruition. You know, you know what the great reality is? That God dwells with us. That the whole new creation is like in the shape of a holy of holies. There is no temple because the God, God and the Lamb are its temple. They dwell with us forever. That is our eternally great reward is that we have reconciliation with God. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that because God dwells with you. Right? In some sense, and I don't want to be blasphemous here, but in some sense, you're not Emmanuel, <laughs> but you are. Because where is God with us? Right here. He's like in me. He doesn't dwell out there somewhere. He's not in a temple made of stone. He's not even in a man, Jesus, walking around. Oh, he's in Palestine. Oh, wait, no, he's up in Galilee. Oh, wait, is he? Oh, no, there he is in Jerusalem. That's amazing. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Emmanuel. But Jesus says, it is even better for you that I ascend to the Father. Because if I ascend to the Father, I will send forth my Spirit. And we... 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will make our abode in you. We will be Emmanuel. Not because I'm God, you understand. That's not what I'm saying. But God dwells with us now by dwelling in us. It is a foretaste, the reconciliation, this personal connection and communion that you have with God by the Spirit in Christ. Because remember that the persons of the Trinity are not like marbles in a bag. You don't ever have one of them. You know, well, we have the Spirit, but I can't wait till we have the Father and the Son. It doesn't work that way. I am in the Father and the Father is in me and we are in you, Jesus says in John 17. If you have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, you have the Father and the Son in the Spirit dwelling in you. And that is the guarantee of that promise, the very great, exceedingly great reward that is to come on that day when we see him as he is and all the barriers, <laughs> the frustrations are gone and we dwell with him forever. And the promise of that, the pledge of that, the guarantee of that is the gift of the Spirit. So that by the Spirit, you know that you in fact are a son. Remember we said son here is a title for inheritor, heir, right? It's not a gender thing. It's a, it's a positional thing. But because you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, who bears witness with your spirit that you are the sons, and if sons, then heirs, and if heirs, then co-heirs with Christ. If you have the Spirit, then you have the pledge of God that there is no condemnation for you in Christ. You have the pledge of God that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have the pledge of God that you enjoy the predestining love of the Father, that you have the redemptive work of the Son, that you have this glorious, exceedingly great reward as an inheritance that is yours reserved in heaven for you. And you have communion with God, for you have God dwelling in you. Well, this is the triune promise of God from the Father through the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit, that having the Spirit, we might love the Son, and in loving and trusting the Son, we might be reconciled to the Father. May we delight in the fact, amidst all the competing, competing lesser delights of this world, may we find rest and peace and satisfaction in the down payment that is ours. So if God tells you, hey, it's only going to be another 400 years, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's only 400 years and some enslavement. <laughs> We can celebrate. We've got, we've got the down payment. We've got the animal pieces split. We've got God passing between. We've got this sacramental sign. We've got the cross. We've got the spirit that testify to our spirit that it is all true and that it's all ours. And then may we say, okay, I don't need to know anymore. I press on faithfully in obedience to God and with joy in the circumstances because I know for certain what is mine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless us, we pray, with confidence in this foretaste, in this deposit, in this guarantee, in this down payment of the purchased possession, that which was purchased by Christ and is laid in waiting for us on that day. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit, and we pray that you would make us satisfied to rest in him. For, Father, we confess that as we already have, our eyes are easily distracted and our hearts are easily tugged.
But Father, may we find great joy in knowing that in Christ, by your Spirit, we have indeed been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Refresh us this morning with that truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.